Good morning. If you were here yesterday, if you weren't here yesterday, let me just give you a little bit of a synopsis of, not even a synopsis, just a kind of a reminder of what we covered. Um, the assembly here will be starting a study on the church. And this is an excellent book, uh, manual tool written by a brother in Christ who lives up in New York named Randy Amos. Um, I think you'll enjoy this. It won't be like reading through a book necessarily. So he gets the points out with some little diagrams and some excellent material. So you all will be going through this. And I was called and asked to um, sort of introduce the topic and introduce the series, I Fellowship at a New Testament Pattern Church like Boulevard here uh, up in Tampa, Florida, Carewood Bible Chapel. Carewood's a community in North Tampa. And um, so yesterday what we did was we spent our time talking about nine reasons why you would want to care about studying the local church. Just, it was really a motivation issue. Why bother? Because you're going to meet a lot of people today that say, hey, don't overcomplicate things. We just need to love Jesus, love each other, and you know, share the gospel. Um, we don't need to get into all the details. Is that true? If, if Jesus Christ were here, would he say, yeah, that's what I want. I just want you to love me, love each other, preach the gospel, and not get into the details. Um, it really only matters if that's actually what God wants. If God wants something more than that, then as great as that sounds, it's actually not, not pleasing to the Lord. And I think the Lord wants a little bit more from us than that. Just um, so you know, we, we mentioned the following points. Um, we mentioned if the Lord Jesus Christ bought the church with his own blood, if God bought it with his own blood, that puts a high, 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 high value on the church. Uh, and it just that automatically means we need to value it extremely high and study it. We also pointed out, and I'm looking through notes, which you can get a copy of, um, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ actually walks among the churches and knows local details about churches. So based on what you see in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus Christ knows even out of this local church. That's, that'll make you stop and think, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> it does matter what's going on. Because he says, well, I know this, I know you're doing that, I know you're struggling with this, by the way, watch this. Uh, that, that should give you reason to stop and think. Um, the church, the third reason, the church is actually a teaching tool for the angelic realm. God is teaching the angelic realm about his wisdom and glory through the church. And we said, if we change things too much, we could actually work against God's purposes. We don't know the sovereign extent of God's plan. And so we need to take care because the church is a model, a demonstration of God's wisdom and power. That's, that's a very interesting impact on your maturity and your growth. If you have a family, I would counsel you, think hard about what local church you are going to raise your children in, your family in. It will impact who they become as adults or at least as professing believers and those that grow. And yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's just like a lot of other things. If you... If you pick a school, some of you are in college or you're looking at schools, you don't tend to say, hey, I don't care. As long as they give a degree at the end, I'll go there. I mean, a lot of times you say, well, I'd like this program. Does this school have a good you know, program in medical or that type of thing? Even more so in the church. Um, the fifth point was that the church is the only visible institution, so to speak, that our Lord left on earth. And I say visible, I don't mean buildings and temples. The body of Christ, he didn't build a parachurch organization. He didn't even leave a school. Um, not to say those things can't be used by God, but 
that puts the priority of our focus on the church. And then there were three super important points that I want you, if you forget everything, if you don't get the notes, I want to give you three letters, remember these, and then we're going to get into this morning's message, okay? Um, and the three letters are NTP, the New Testament Pattern Church, and you'll hear me using that phrase. And the point was simply this. There is a pattern for the church in the New Testament. And we went through lots of verses looking at the fact that the apostles had a real clear idea about what doctrine was, what truth was, that it needed to be passed on. And that kind of flies in the face of a lot of people that say, well, it's not that big a deal. You're kind of, you know, majoring on the minors. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to look at what the apostles emphasized. So we talked about, A, there's a pattern in the church. B, the pattern points to spiritual principles. So it's not just that we're doing things, oh, at this local church we have a plurality of elders instead of a traditional pastoral system, and that's just the way we like it. Actually, that pattern points to spiritual principles, and those spiritual principles can dynamically change the life and maturity of a local church. Principles like the headship of Christ, the priesthood of all believers. Um, well, those kinds of principles are what people, boy, when they get a hold of those, they begin to grow and understand things. So there's a pattern in the scripture. The pattern points to principles, I think as effectively as anything we could engineer in the church today. And the last point we made was that if you try to implement the New Testament's pattern for the church into your local church, it will be hard. There will be difficulties. People will do things that are not comfortable. But then the shepherds in the local church now know things about this gathering that they can begin to shepherd and grow. Things that you might not know if you had some other mechanism in place. So we had an open meeting here. We worshipped. If somebody was to stand up, that comes from 1 Corinthians 14, and say something that was doctrinally inappropriate, that wouldn't happen in a traditional church because people would just be singing songs and there'd be a praise band up here or something like that. And that's, that's the extent of worship in a lot of local churches. And I think the Lord appreciates that. But this is a biblical pattern. If somebody was to stand up and say something odd, the shepherds would say, ooh, this person has some false doctrine or this person doesn't understand something. Now they know something about the body they didn't know before because they were putting the pattern into practice. It's harder, but there's good results. And if you have friends that are at evangelical churches, one of the things I'm going to talk about this morning is that we want to encourage them, hey, have you ever considered the New Testament's pattern for the church? Maybe it's something that your church could do. Even one small step towards the New Testament's pattern in this way or that way will have benefits for a local church. It's not sort of an all-or-nothing thing. There are two handouts in the back. Um, one of them is sort of just a thinking tool. And what it is is it's just a list of some of the different things in the New Testament that the church does. And it's to help any local church think, how, how much are we really New Testament patterned? And I can explain this to you. And this was just a simple chart showing some of the principles that are pointed to in the New Testament. Okay, I, I hope that was a super fast rundown of yesterday. Um, my email is on the bottom of those. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's get into today's topic. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a scripture and then I'm just going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time again this morning. Don't we, don't we need the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to apply his word to us? I mean, we really do. I could say all kinds of things, but the Lord knows your questions, and, and he knows where I could say something that's not accurate, so we definitely need the Lord's help. This is his word. This is his church. Ephesians chapter 4, 
We're going to go to verse number one. Okay? And we're going to read through verses one through uh, one through six. And I haven't given you a title today. Don't worry, I'll give you that. We're going to read this and we're going to pray together. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing or putting up with one another in love. Endeavoring to do what? What's the goal of this kind of behavior? To keep or to maintain or to preserve the unity of the spirit. That's going to be our focus today. In the bond of peace. Here is the sevenfold unity of the spirit. Seven things that all true believers have in common. There is one Lord, one faith. Excuse me. There is one body. That was verse five. Verse four. There was one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We will focus on this passage primarily this morning. Let's just bow our heads and ask the Lord to help us use our time in a way that would please him. Father, this morning, you know that I could stand up and say things that might sound interesting or uh, that might be biblical, but perhaps are not uh, what you want us to focus on. Lord, you know what I've got written down here, but I ask that you would, by your spirit, lead us together in our study of the church this morning, Lord. Um, help us to uh, just listen at the right times and say the, uh, the right things. And um, we ask that you would be glorified and your son would be glorified and that we would be better off as a result of the teaching this morning, Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So let me give you a little bit of an idea on the image. What's going to happen as you all go through this manual is that Brother Randy and the local church here, so to speak, are going to paint a target for you of what to aim for. Okay? Not with any rubber bands or anything here, but this is, in a sense, the, the, the biblical pattern for the church. And my goal is to see New Testament pattern churches in the state of Florida and, and throughout the world because I think that's the best thing for believers, to be part of a church that's patterned after the New Testament. This is sort of the center. This is what you're aiming for. Today, I'm going to talk about the boundary. Where are the boundaries, sort of the, out, the outlines? Because what you'll have today, if you have any friends or you talk to people, there are all kinds of churches out there in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's something like 30-something thousand, I'm probably wrong, denominations, names, versions, I'm not trying to be funny, you know, flavors. I mean, just all kinds of things that are out there. How do you interact with those groups? I mean, what do you do about that? You will meet people that will say, well, what group are you with? Where do you go to church? It's sad today that it's almost meaningless because of the diversity to say, I'm a Christian. Isn't that sad? You can tell I actually hesitate to call myself a Christian in talking with people because I know they may have no idea what that means in in one sense. They could be thinking that I'm with this wacko group out here. I am with that group over there. I believe this over here. I believe that over there. It's a sad testimony that people can't just say, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, we know what you're like. That's what happened in Acts 13. The world called the followers of Jesus Christians, little Christs, so to speak. Christiano, I think it is. Because they looked and acted and lived like the Lord Jesus Christ. People took that term and applied it to themselves, and today we've got all kinds of things. So sometimes I tell people, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to implement the scriptures. 
And so today we're going to talk about the boundary. Where is the dividing line between, I'll say this phrase, the true church and everything else? Let me give you a little bit of history. This local church was planted by people in decades past, and those pioneers and church planters were sent out by people in years past. And a lot of local churches like this have a, a history back in Christian history that goes back to a movement that started in a couple places in Europe in the early 1800s. There were people that grew up, for example, in the United Kingdom where there was a state church. But the state church had become very shallow and very different from what was seen in Scripture. And believers, their consciences pricked by Scripture, said, you know what, this isn't right. And when they looked away from the state church, there were all of these dissenting churches. And many of them weren't doing what the state church was. But the problem was this. You could go visit some of them. Let's say you accepted Christ as your Savior. You trusted the Lord. You went and visited a local church. And people said, ah, welcome to our local church. But then there was very, very, very strong pressure to join one of these groups, to take a name, and to join a group that was in exclusion to other groups. And there was major division, more so than we see today. I don't think... I think the Lord accomplished part of his purpose through a revival and did away with some of that. But there were very strong walls between churches at those times. And there were some believers who were convicted by this. There was a man who was thrown out of a local church because he wouldn't join a particular group and be known by a certain name. And he was put out. And Christians said, this is not right. And they began to meet around the basic principle that believers have the Lord Jesus Christ in common. They didn't want to be known by different names and, and divisions. And so this started a movement of people coming out of churches and coming together and saying, what does the Bible teach again? And you know how, what happens sometimes is once you open the door to what does the Bible teach, you start to learn. And some of you, it's, for some people, it's like a second salvation. And I don't want to use that improperly. But first, we understand the gospel and the lights go on. The Lord saves us. We get new life. And Wow, I, this, is, this is what life is all about, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you might get money and live rich. No, that you might know the, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the meaning of life, to know God and to know Jesus Christ. Eternal life starts today. It doesn't start after you die, right? And, but then some people, when they begin to learn about, oh, there's all kinds of stuff in here about the church and about what believers are to do when they come together. It's like another light goes off. And so people began to see this and enjoy it. And local churches popped up all over the world that started to go back to scriptures and say, well, that's not in the book and this is not in the book. Golly, that's not in the book. Oh, we did this. And they began to basically pattern their churches after the New Testament. And it was a movement and a revival that swept across the world. And interestingly, it didn't start because of one particular person. Come down through the years, 100, 150 years, 1900s, this movement, early, late 1800s, this movement comes across the Atlantic into the United States and Canada, down through the areas here. Local churches like this are planted. This group was called in its early days after some of, because the, the, the Christians there refused to take a name, was called after one of the locations they were found in. They called these people the Brethren from Plymouth. There was a local church with a 1,000 believers 
and, uh, and, 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 and Plymouth, and so they, these are the brethren from Plymouth. These are the Plymouth brethren, and they didn't want to take that name. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a Bible scholar that, that was among them named W. Vine. Maybe you've seen Vine's Dictionary of Biblical Words. He also has a, a set of books, and in his first volume, he has an article in the back titled, The Mistaken Term, The Brethren. The problem is, is that if you look down through church history in, in the last hundred years and people that grew up in these local churches, some of them did start to call themselves by the brethren. What kind of local church are you from? I'm from a PB church. I'm from a Plymouth Brethren church. And their sort of wrangling went on. Well, we're non-denominational. We shouldn't use that term. Well, yeah, we kind of are. We should just admit it. And, and so people, as they do, struggle. What does the scripture say? We want to be biblical. And... What I'm going to talk to you about today, I think, addresses that issue. How do you participate in a New Testament pattern church without taking as much as possible a name and, and, and an identity that divides you from the rest of the church? Um, one of the ways that these Christians talked about doing that was by not taking names in their, their buildings and where they met. I'm not going to focus on that this morning. They would historically call themselves, you know, North Chicago Christian assembly. Just like in the scriptures, Christians were known by where they were at. Okay, The churches of Galatia, that type of thing. I'm not going to talk about it this morning. This morning, I'm, I'm bringing your attention to Ephesians chapter 4. How do we relate to other believers? Where is the dividing line? Some of these local churches became very self-centered. They said, well, we've got the truth. We've got the light. And they begin to do the very thing that some of their early predecessors avoided. They began to divide off and separate from other local churches. They, they wound up coming full circle back to the very ground of sort of division and separation. Ephesians chapter 4, to me, suggests where we should really look if we want to talk about a dividing line between, so to speak, the true church and something that isn't the true church. And I'm going to make a point, and then I'm going to walk us through the passage just in case... I get off on a rabbit trail or something like that. I should call it a rabbit trail. Hopefully it's something that the Lord leads us on to. But Ephesians chapter 4 gives us the sevenfold unity of the Spirit. Okay? Catch this if you don't catch anything. Ephesians 4 gives us the sevenfold unity of the Spirit. What seven things do all true believers have in common? Is it that they don't have, you know, this type of building or they don't practice this? Look back at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse number um, three, we are to endeavor, we are to try to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What is the unity of the spirit? I believe that which unifies all believers. What do all believers have in common is found right here. Verse four, there is one body. There are not two bodies. There are not three bodies. There is one body of Christ. And if you've trusted him as your savior, you are in that one body. And I'll talk about that a little bit later if I can, I can get there. Two, there is one Holy Spirit. All true believers have one Holy Spirit in common. There are other spirits roaming about, so to speak. The scriptures talk about them. You might meet somebody that says something that evidences that they have a different spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. All true believers have one hope in their calling. They've been called, they have one hope. And that revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, his return. I don't know, but some churches have a different hope today. It's very materialistic, other things like that. Number, uh, verse number five, one Lord. And when you read through the scriptures, you might hear Lord and just think about 
just God in general, but oftentimes the Lord is the Lord Jesus. If you hear a, a local church or somebody introducing to you a different Lord Jesus, you automatically know that this group has stepped outside of the unity of the faith. You will meet people that use the name Jesus, but when they begin describing who they understand Jesus to be, they're preaching a different Lord. Uh, verse number four also says, um, excuse me, verse five, one faith. That reminds me of our doctrine, but specifically the gospel. You will meet groups that preach a different faith, a different gospel. Once you hear that, you know, wait a minute. There is a, there is a line between us. True believers, the true church preaches the gospel, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. You can see that in many verses of the New Testament. One baptism. We don't have as many baptisms in our culture today as you might have seen in other groups if you live in a, a, a more of a, um, a country with you know, some different religious groups together. You might see different types of baptisms, different types of purifications and different things like that. There's one baptism okay, that we, we see in Romans chapter 6. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. It might seem basic to you until you go to the mission field that it matters that there is one true God. You might say, oh yeah, of course, we all believe in the same God. Well, you have to listen to what people say and what they talk about. There were early people that claimed to be Christians. They were known as the Gnostics. And when you listen to their description of God, it's different than what you see in the New Testament. Those seven things, at least, all true believers have in common. And that is a, just a basic point that I think we should keep in mind that this is really the boundary between those that are in the church, in the body of Christ, so to speak, and those that are out. Today, Christians have made lots of different walls within that wider boundary. Do you see that? They've made lots of different walls. And in some of you, and in, and in me, we may want to separate from those who the Lord Jesus Christ loves. They're his bride. He owns them. He guides them. They may have growth. We may need growth. But these seven truths push us to take care and be cautious about how we relate to others who are in the body of Christ. Because one day, we'll stand with them and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, we'll worship with them. Now, this is not to indicate and it is not to suggest that nothing else matters. But I think we need to keep a balance between these things and then the things that God challenges us to hold to and become. One, one brother told me one time, we have a heart as big as God's and we keep our feet in a narrow path. That's an interesting phrase to think about. So let's just move on and talk about a few other things this morning. Um, let me just go, let me take you back to verse number one. Uh, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. If you're like me, you run the risk sometimes of reading through a verse like that and saying, okay, we're called with a calling, I guess so, I understand that. The Lord's called us and we've got to walk worthy, all right, and just keep on going. You ever do that? I, you can nod, maybe you don't. I do that sometimes. You just read through when you're moving on to the passage. You're looking for favorite verses. Did you ever stop and consider this phrase, calling? What does it mean to walk worthy of your calling? Are you walking worthy of your calling? You know what the dangerous thing is? People sit in local churches all the time and they really don't care. Now, if I, if I come down and I ask you, oh, yeah, I this, I that, but in our hearts, do you actually care if you're walking worthy of the calling of the Lord? 
Do you really care? Does it really matter? Or is much of the scripture become something that doesn't matter? You know, if you were in a country where they would kill you for Christ and you didn't have any scriptures, just these little concepts and hearing them would matter. You'd want to know more about them. And I want to encourage you all to, to, to consider the following things. Our calling does not just mean, turn to 1 Timothy 6.12. I'm going to give you rapid fire several verses that will illustrate your calling. Your calling does not just mean that you've been called to, to, to be saved and you're going to live forever. It does involve that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Let's read some verses quickly. How do you walk worthy of your calling? Well, you can't do that if you don't know what your calling is, right? I think that would make sense. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. says the following. First Timothy chapter 6. says, if I've got the reference right, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The gospel call goes out to all that are within earshot, so to speak. The Holy Spirit's working on us. And what are you called unto? One of the basic things you're called unto eternal life. And we mentioned eternal life starts today. It's the life that's bound up in the Godhead. John writes about that. Okay? Some people don't even know that. They don't even know about eternal life in the sense of what it means for you today. They just think, that just means I'm going to live forever. What is, what is eternal life really made of? And are you enjoying it? You're called unto eternal life. And that's all some people know. Turn to, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If we mention that eternal life means to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the only true God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, write these down. This would make a great Bible study. If you're sort of at a lull in your study of scriptures, write these down and go home and look at them. What is my calling? It's like a job description, not a job description, but it's, it's something like that. There's, there's something that you've been called to be involved in and to enjoy and to live. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These are the kind of verses I'm talking about. Have you ever read those? You say, I don't know, what does that mean? The fellowship, and I'm just going to keep on reading. What does that mean? The fellowship of his son. You know what fellowship is? Fellowship is joint ownership, joint partnership. You go into a business with somebody else, you all are in fellowship. You own that together. You, you participate. You, you've been called into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're intimately bound up with him in a very unique way now. Jude 1.1 describes Christians as the called ones. It's actually a title for people. You're called. Romans chapter 8.28. Let's turn there. Just again, I'm saying if, if, if Ephesians talks about walking worthy of our calling, what's our calling? I'm listing out some verses right now that sort of fill in what we might understand our calling to be. Romans 8, verse 28. We read here, and we know that all things work together for good to those who, one, love God. That is an interesting, why does he say that to those who love God? To those who are the called according to his purpose. Okay? So all things do not work together for good for those that are not inside that group. 
those that do not love God, and those that are not the called according to his purpose. All believers are titled the called. And then we keep reading this. We say, we see here, what is his purpose? Well, look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, God foreknows all things. Whom he foreknew, the individuals he foreknew. He also predestined. What? What's your destination? If the Lord knows you, if he knew you in times past, what was your destiny? Your, your destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? Why does God want people all over the world through history conformed to the image of his son? That he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh, it's God's intention to have a world populated by people just like the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be neat? And I think that was God's intention in the beginning, to make man in his own image, to have dominion, to, to represent him on earth. These he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Those that are called, those that answer the call, are justified. They're declared righteous by God. And whom he justified, this is interesting, glory is guaranteed. These he also glorified, even though it hasn't happened yet. It'll happen in the future. That's part of your calling. Interesting phrase. Uh, I'll just give you some other references you can write down for sake of time. Galatians 5.13 says you're called unto liberty. So why would you go get involved in a, in, a, in a religious system that binds you up in a legalistic lifestyle where you hope that, that you can impress others by doing things and not doing things? Why would you get involved in a, in a religious system that entangles you up in bondage? You're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Why would you go entangle yourself in darkness? Some of us are consuming things of darkness. Entertainment that's based on darkness. Books based on darkness. Kids watching all kinds of stuff that's dark. and You're called out of darkness. And we're called into purity. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 7. You're called to the holy calling. We're called to peace in one body. Colossians 3, verse 12. We're called to um, obtain future glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. There's all of these verses that talk about your calling. Have you ever done a study on your calling? You ever stopped and said, what? the Lord Jesus called me. He says, hey, come participate in this. Come get involved in this life. Come know about this. We've been called to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in suffering. We don't like that one necessarily. 1 Peter 2, verses 21. Verse 21. All right. If you go and look at those things and then you come back and you read Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read it again. Look at some of those verses, get them in your mind, and then come back and read this verse. Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. What in the, that's an amazing phrase. And I'm not, I can't stop and talk about it. The prisoner of the Lord. Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with all long-suffering, putting up with one another in love. You know what? Some of you all need putting up with. I need putting up with too. If you're married, you know what it means to put up with people. And your spouse knows what it means to put up with you. Here's a basic point. I've made a few points this morning. You're going to go through a course a book that talks about the pattern, the target, what you're aiming for as a local church. I have briefly sketched the boundary that all Christians have at least seven things in common. Once you step outside that boundary, you start preaching another Lord, another Christ, another faith, another baptism. 
Whatever you call it, you stepped outside that which unifies all believers. We are to keep that with one another, and perhaps even, I would argue, with all believers. We are to keep the, the, uh, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to keep peacefully with all believers. How do you do that? If you think it's some big thing, by being patient with people, by being long-suffering, by being humble. Do you know what divides more churches and more groups? Oftentimes, unfortunately, it's not doctrine. We wish that people were so keen on doctrine that they would say, well, I'm just so convinced from this and I've got to go elsewhere. I mean, that does happen sometimes. But oftentimes, you want to know why people leave local churches and leave groups? Because they can't get along with other people. They might have something that they're hiding their issue behind. Oh, you know, this guy, I just don't like the way he did this. But there's oftentimes something between two people. And that's why it's love, Colossians says, Lowliness, um, humility, long-suffering that the church needs. This local church will not survive people that are not humble, that are not long-suffering. Anybody who comes into this fellowship, and they're they're probably hearing this, and they're probably thinking, oh, I'm long-suffering. You're not long-suffering. I'm sure there's somebody here that needs to understand and know that you're not humble, you're not long-suffering, and you don't put up with people. You think too much of yourself, you're too proud, and you don't get along with others. The Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And they yelled in his face, they spit in his face, and he didn't revile back again. If he didn't do that, how can we? The church is so often torn asunder, both locally and between other groups, because people are not like Christ. I'm not saying all that to say that we peddle or light on doctrine. I'm not, you will not hear me say this morning that these issues don't matter. I have made, a, I've made personal choices and sacrifices to not be involved in ministries and things because I'm convicted about the New Testament pattern for the church. But my challenge and my desire and my goal is to see believers that are keen on doctrine and Christ-like in their attitude towards one another. I would challenge us to do this when we meet other believers. I love you in the Lord. You love the Lord. I love the Lord. We're in one body, but I'm spending my time and my energy and my resources to be involved in churches that are New Testament pattern, not because I don't like you, but because I think that's what's best for the body. I think that's what pleases Christ. I would love to encourage you to do the same. I've seen the opposite so often among believers, where there's sort of this... this, this, this uh, a divisiveness and an anger. Some have even taken the doctrine of the one body, and I have to be cautious. I'm open to correction. I was, I was reading William Kelly, and he, he seems to lean in this direction. I don't fully understand the doctrine of the one body that's come out of some groups, which is, which is almost like they had such a strong, tight concept of the, the unity and doctrine of the church that any departure from it whatsoever resulted in division. And all other churches were called to align with one or the other. And, 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 and some of these churches in this movement in the past, that this concept of one body arose, which is not just that there's one body and we need to fight for it and hold to it, but that there's one very tight, exclusive body. And churches were cast out of it. It says, we have to be careful. Is that, is that the goal of the Lord? And when you look through church history, you see... Uh, You see all kinds of confusion along that line. And so the Lord help us to hold fast to sound doctrine, to not be apologetic about it, to be upfront about it. 
But when we talk with other believers, our identity is not going to be, I, ho- I would hope that we are of this denominational group, we are of that denominational group, we are of, or, uh, our brother was talking about, um, you'll meet some of well, I'm from the Plymouth Brethren, I'm from the Assemblies, I told a story yesterday about this and I'll repeat it, uh, but we're just a group of believers that are trying to be New Testament pattern, we're trying to follow the scriptures and what we do. We are part of, if you're a believer, we're part of the same body that you are. See? And we try to walk in love with the body of Christ and yet keep our feet on a narrow path. The story I told yesterday was that I work with a, uh, I do some work with a directory where we keep a list of New Testament pattern churches in the United States. And I got a call one time from a brother in Kansas and he says, is, I, had, I had lived in Dallas for a few years and he says, is this local church in Dallas, Texas... An assembly. Now, if you know anything about the, the history that local churches like this came, came from, many of them started calling themselves the assemblies. Why did they do that? Because in a desire 100 years ago to teach children and families that the church was not the building, which many people still have a misconception today, but the church was the body, they started to use a better English translation for the word ecclesia, and that was the word assembly. The church is an assembling of believers assembled around what? The pastor? A great building? Great projects? Awesome music, man. The coffee shop and the bookstore? What did the church assemble around? The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where two or three are gathered in, or the Greek uh, preposition ace is unto my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's all they needed. The building could burn. One of the elders, God forbid, could, could pass away and others could be appointed. They needed the Lord Jesus Christ at their center. That's what, that's what bound them together. And so they use this term assemblies. But after 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, people started talking about, well, I'm from the assemblies. This is an assembly. And so he calls up and he says, is this local church in Dallas an assembly? And I said to myself, well, in Scripture, there is only one word. It's ecclesia. There are not churches versus assemblies. There are ecclesia. All gatherings of believers are assemblies. The question is not, is this an assembly versus non-assembly? Because we have a directory called a directory of assemblies. The question is, is this assembly New Testament patterned? Boulevard Bible Chapel is an assembly of believers. I don't know. I assume there's a First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale or Hollywood. That is an assembly of believers, as long as they're within that boundary of the sevenfold unity of faith. The question is not, are they an assembly? The question is, are they New Testament patterned? What if they're not? It doesn't mean that somehow they're not part of the church. It means that, hey, we, in love, say, hey, we'd love to share with you guys some of the awesome doctrine that we have enjoyed over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. There are blessings that are untapped for your local church in the scriptures. Now, some of you, this might be a different way of thinking. And if this isn't according to Scripture, you're more than welcome to open the Bible and say, well, I think you should be more separatist. Um, It's a matter of focusing on a target in the center as opposed to focusing on who you're not interacting with and who you're trying to get away from. We say, look, we're trying to go after the Scriptures. We're trying to follow Christ. We're trying to do these things. Come along with us. We'd love, to, we'd love to see this in your local church. And so I answered him by basically saying, you know, I think maybe that's more of the idea. And I started to think a year or so ago, not in terms of I'm part of the assemblies and what local church is an assembly, but to say, 
what local church is New Testament pattern? And then I started to think about, well, what does New Testament pattern mean? Is there a list of seven out of nine things in the scriptures such that if a local church does seven out of nine, they're a quote-unquote assembly, but if they only do six out of nine, they're not, and they can't be listed in some directory? That's not in the scriptures. You see, that, that's why I talk about the boundary. The boundary is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so my desire is to say, look, with my energies and my resources, this is the direction I'm pushing and focusing. Hopefully this local church would push in that direction. And when you meet other believers, hey, this is the direction we're going in. We'd like you to come along with us. Maybe tonight I will spend some time talking about the one Lord, the one faith, one baptism. I might also talk about reasons why some people leave local churches like this. Because Randy doesn't talk about that. And I've got some answers from people around the country on that topic. So I hope that's helpful. Please ask me if I haven't been clear on some of these things. You're also free to email me. Um, and we can talk about any of these things. So the, the boundary, the target in the center, our love for the, the Lord's people, our desire to stay keen on doctrine, and a balance in both of those things. Let's just pray and, and, and close this, this meeting. Our Father in heaven this morning, we ask that you would help us to think rightly according to thy word. Lord, sometimes you know it is uncomfortable, uncomfortable for us to change from what is comfortable. But Father, we ask that if there was an area where our thinking and our behavior does not align to scripture, you would help us to go back to scripture and behave and think rightly according to it. Lord, we want to not be disqualified when we stand before Christ, such that things that we did and things that we worked on we're not according to thy will. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to search the scriptures and pattern our lives after them. I pray for this assembly in that, that regard and, and, and all local churches of true believers that have the same Lord, the same faith, the same Father that we do. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.